Well, good morning, church. Thank you, Matt, for sharing our scripture reading this morning. We are going to continue in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, this morning. So we're preparing our hearts and minds for Christmas this year. And, uh, you know, Christmas is a reminder uh, that from man's perspective, things don't always go as planned. As we saw this morning, Andrew Matthews was not expecting to uh, sing all of our songs this morning, but when your worship leader wakes up without a voice, you do what you have to do. And the uh, Christmas story, as we find in the Gospel of Matthew, is one of those that, certainly from Joseph's perspective, as we see Matthew writing, I believe, from Joseph's perspective, this was not what Joseph had in mind. When he was betrothed to this young lady named Mary, I'm sure they were planning out their lives as so many young engaged couples might do. What God brought about was certainly not what Joseph would have intended. And yet isn't this true for us as well? So often what God has for, in store for us in our lives is not what we would have intended but he always seeks what is best for us. So today we're going to talk about, here in Matthew chapter 1, the scriptures that were just read, we're going to talk about the birth of our king. And talk about the birth of our king and how uh, Matthew lays this out in the Gospel of Luke. You see a much more extended and, and detailed portrayal of this. Uh, Luke most likely writes from the, the witness of Mary herself, whereas Matthew writes from, uh, the, from Joseph's perspective. But here we find just a very simple, straightforward account of the things that happened in the days in which the Son of God was born into the world. And our key truth for this morning is this. His birth was like no other because he's a king like no other. There are some strange things that happen here in the verses that we're looking at this morning. They happen because... The individual being born is unique in the history of the world. There has never been a birth like this because there's never been a man like this. And so we're going to look at his life today. J.I. Packer said, It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. In fact, what we're going to look at in these verses herein is one of the miracles that those who would seek to uh, dispute or to do away with the Bible, this is one of the most disputed miracles in all of the scriptures, this thing we know as the virgin birth. We'll be talking about it some this morning. So let's talk about this king, the birth of our King Jesus. First of all, we see here in verses 18 and 19 that this king is the promised one. This is the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Testament. But it doesn't come about in the way that mankind expected. Even though God had told them where the Messiah would be born and, and so many details related to his life and ministry, when he came, we were unprepared because he didn't come as they expected him 
to come. In general, a king is not born in a cattle stall. A king is born in a palace. And yet this king is not like any other king. This, the Christ, was the long-awaited Messiah. We walk through the Old Testament, even as we sought to do this morning in our Sunday school class, and we see again and again and again these promises of the one that would be known as the Messiah or the Christ. He is prophesied about again and again. Some have counted as many as 300 different prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, but there are at least 40 or 50 major prophecies that we see through the the length of the Old Testament that point us again and again to this one, this Christ, this Messiah. It all began in Genesis 3.15. When sin entered into the world, God's grace was shown so clearly. In Genesis 3.15, as God is speaking to that old serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. By the way, it doesn't show so well in our English uh, translations, but in the Hebrew, that word offspring is singular. So it's not all mankind. He is speaking about a particular descendant of this woman, Eve. And what will he do? He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. At the head of that old serpent, Satan, who led mankind into sin and death, that his head would be crushed under the heel of this offspring and the heel of that offspring would be bruised he would be bruised in the crushing of the serpent and from genesis 3 15 onward we see again and again and again in the old testament glimpses of the messiah and god is piling up the promises throughout the old testament as mankind grows more and more sinful the faithfulness of almighty god is put on even starker display until we come to Matthew 1. Last week we looked at Jesus' genealogy, his resume, if you will, related to him being descendant of Abraham, which made him worthy of, of being in the, the line of the Jews through which the Messiah would come, but also being connected to King David, that he was worthy of receiving the promises of the Davidic covenant. We're going to come back to that again this morning, by the way. But we see his spiritual resume, and then in verse 18, Matthew jumps right into the birth narrative. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We see here miraculous means. We see here the veracity, the truthfulness of the virgin birth. Again, this is perhaps the most disputed miracle in all the Bible. There have been those who have written to oppose the virgin birth who even believed in the resurrection, but they rejected this. Because they look at the way things normally happen and they say people aren't born in this way. We know God's design that a man and a woman would come together and bring forth children. 
This has been a miracle that has been on the hot seat, especially over the last couple hundred years. And if you go back to the earliest beliefs of the church, this was upheld as central to their message to the world. We can go back to the Apostles' Creed. Uh, The Apostles' Creed was a a faith statement that, that appears as early as the second century that was related. This is what people would say before they were baptized. It was a, a baptismal creed, and the church would often recite these words as a reminder of what this book teaches us about having faith in Jesus Christ. It goes something like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. And it goes on to talk about his resurrection, his ascension, and his eternal kingship. But in the very heart of this creed, this faith statement of the early church, was this truth of the virgin birth conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now there have been many misunderstandings of the virgin birth. The Catholic Church will teach that Mary herself was sinless. That is how Jesus was able to come into this world not bearing the sin of mankind. Understand, church, the Bible never once gives any indication that Mary herself was sinless or that she continued in some kind of perpetual virginity after this because she and Joseph had other sons and daughters. Where do you think Jesus' brothers and sisters came from later in this gospel? I'm laying that forward to say to us, that that there are many false teachings associated with this doctrine of the virgin birth, we want to seek to get it right. And so Mary herself was not sinless. But God was doing something here that had never happened in the history of the world. Since the very beginning of creation, a man and a woman had come together in the conception and the bringing forth of children. But God here does something to break that line. He does something here. He steps into history, and in, by this miraculous means, he does something to break that line that goes all the way back to Adam. Because from Adam on, there had been something attached to that conceiving and bearing forth children. It was the curse of sin and death. And so what is God doing here? He's showing us multiple things in the virgin birth of Christ. First of all, He is showing us that salvation comes by God's hand without the assistance of man. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the same is true of the new birth that comes into our lives when we trust in Jesus Christ. That we too are born anew in the Holy Spirit. God does something in us apart from anything that we might seek to do for ourselves. This is God's work. 
He's also showing that there has been a decisive break here in that long line of the passing on of sin from Adam on. That Jesus would not inherit the sin of Adam, again, not because Mary was sinless, but because he was showing a break in that line. He was showing that all that had been passed down from generation to generation, that there was an end here, that this would be the final breaking point in which God would start something brand new through the line of Christ and those who had faith in Him. He's also giving us a glimpse of how it is that we could say that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Now again, this is a mystery. How do we understand Jesus as both fully God and fully man? The virgin birth is the beginning of that mystery. We don't understand how it all worked. Even Mary herself said, how can this be? This is not how babies come into the world, but when God steps in, God does what he wants to do. He wrote the rules, he can change them if he wants. And that's what he does here as his son is brought in to the world. The virgin birth, central to our faith. Donald McLeod said the virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas. And none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find it offensive, there's no point in proceeding further. What's he saying? He's saying this. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, then you do not have saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you would reject this supernatural act of God that characterizes this very season of Christmas, then Easter will have no meaning for you. Again, there have been some who have sought to embrace the resurrection and yet to reject the virgin birth. And we cannot do that. Because this is the inerrant word of God that is showing us that this is how God brought His Son into the world. This is essential to the gospel. This is not a secondary doctrine that we're talking about here. This is essential to the gospel and we must embrace it if we would embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. And by the way, in our embracing of it, we must also proclaim it. What are we proclaiming at Christmas time? Not just a baby born in a manger. We are proclaiming a baby born like no other. A king above all kings. The Lord of lords, the Son of God and Son of Man, we are proclaiming Him in all of His fullness and glory and proclaiming that He is the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises of God. We looked at this last week, but I wanted to bring it out again this morning. There's a reminder here in verse 19, though, that God's fulfillment of His promises is not without hurdles. 
It, it is not without obstacles that God brings about his promise fulfillment. Verse 19, her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. By this point, the baby bump is showing. Joseph has in some way or other become aware uh, that his fiance is with child. He knows he's not the father. He assumes someone else is. He has every right to make a public spectacle of her, even to call for her to be stoned to death according to the Old Testament scriptures. But Joseph, being a just man, being a righteous man, set out to do things quietly, to divorce her quietly, to dissolve the marriage without a bunch of hubbub. But God had different plans, didn't he? Just for a moment, stop and put yourself in Joseph's situation. This is earth-shattering news. All the plans that Joseph had for he and his soon-to-be bride seemed to have been erased in the moment when he became aware of this pregnancy. And yet it was this very pregnancy that would be not only his salvation, but the salvation of all who would trust in this baby that was to be born. What Joseph saw as the end of the world was really the beginning of a new work that God was doing in bringing a new way for people to come to him through faith in Jesus. So once again, 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ, their fulfillment, their conclusion in Christ. That's why it is through him, through Christ, that we utter our amen to God for his glory we're seeing the power of the promise keeping god on display not only is this king the promised one but he goes on to show us that this king is the preserving one it's interesting here that god does something he only does a handful of times in the entire bible only a handful of times in the entire bible do you see god choosing to name a child you go back to the Old Testament, to Abraham in those early chapters in Genesis, and you find that God takes the initiative to name Abraham's two boys, Ishmael and Isaac. He doesn't allow Abraham and Sarah the privilege that has been granted to mankind of naming their own children. He does it several other times in the Old Testament. We come to the New Testament and we find he does the same thing with Zechariah and with Elizabeth and the naming of John. And the people even question, why would you name your kid John? That's not one of, a, a name in your family line. Normally they would name, as we often do, after a, a grandparent or, or someone in their, in their ancestry. So that, that name isn't even attached to your family line. Why would you choose the name John? But you see, Zechariah didn't choose the name John. God did. Each time that God does this work of seeking, choosing to, a name for a child, he is signaling a, a turn in the plan of redemption. God is doing some kind of a, a new and special work. And here, in the same way that we see with a new thing that God's doing in the, in the births of Isaac and Ishmael in the Old Testament, now we see God doing a, a new thing in the births of John and Jesus. 
And so just like he had said to Zechariah and to Elizabeth, call him John, now he says to Joseph and to Mary, you will call his name Jesus. Why this name? It was a common name in that day. Now, none of us would probably ever even think about naming our child Jesus. That would seem very strange to us, unless we were in a Latin family, and then you might have a Jesus, but... We're, we're not going to probably choose that name today, but it was a common name in their day. But it was the meaning of the name. It was the meaning of the name that was so important because the name Jesus means the Lord saves. He wanted to point forward to the saving work of this child as he was entering into the world and they would go into the temple and have him circumcised and he would be given that name on the eighth day, on the day of his circumcision. He wanted to give him that name as a sign, as a a signpost pointing forward to the work that this child had come into the world to do. He had come to save us from our sins He had come to do what the psalmist writes about in Psalm 130. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with him there is steadfast love. With him there is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And the fulfillment of that is found right here in Matthew chapter 1. We don't have to wait till Matthew 27 and get to the cross. We are seeing the beginning of God fulfilling these promises of salvation right here at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And God uses miraculous means to make this known. The miraculous means of the virgin birth, and now we see the miraculous means related to the authenticity of angel dreams. Now, I don't have time to get into uh, the theology of dreams this morning. There are multiple places in the Bible where God chooses to use dreams to communicate his message to various people. Uh, we, we could look at a lot of places in the Old Testament where God does this. But, but I would still say to us, this is at best a rarity. There's a lot of people that love to get mixed up in all this and does God still speak through dreams today and all, and all the things that people want to get into with this. But let, let's understand this first of all. God rarely ever does this. There's a handful of times throughout the Bible that we see God using dreams to, to communicate his plan and, and his word to people. But it is a rarity as we look at even biblical history. We come down to today, and you may be wanting to have an answer to the question, does God still communicate through dreams today? And I would say this. It's not that God can't do that, but God has given us something today that they did not have, which is the completed canon of Scripture. He has given us His fulfilled word the fullness of his revelation so that there's no longer a need for God to communicate through dreams and so we have something better than what they had in Joseph's day and yet here we see God communicating in this way he says a similar thing with Mary in Luke chapter 1 in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
And so God sends his messengers to communicate to these two primary characters in the birth of his son, to Joseph and to Mary, communicating that which must take place. God is guiding this from beginning to end. And so it must be. But he also, in saying these things to Joseph, the angel gives a reminder of God's plan. Look at what he says there in verse 20. The angel said to Joseph, appeared to him in a dream, and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, son of David. Now again, think back to last week in the genealogy. The genealogy was again and again and again seeking to link Jesus with King David. But not just with the person of King David, with the promises made to King David that God was fulfilling in Christ. You see, the son of David, instance there, the son of David was a reminder of God's promises that were being fulfilled. Don't miss that. The, the, the angel referring to him as son of David would have cued Joseph in. God is fulfilling his promises that he made to David, like we see in 2 Samuel 7. Where God said to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the Davidic covenant. God would be true to his word. Fulfilling his promises. Doing everything he had promised to do and doing it through this baby born in the manger. So we see this king the promised one, the preserving one, the saving one. We see this king is also the present one. He makes reference, this is the first of a multiple number of references to Old Testament prophecies that Matthew is continually pulling out. See a dozen or so of these throughout his gospel that Matthew's taking hold of Old Testament promises and saying, here's the fulfillment, it's in Jesus. This is the first of many. All this took place, he says, to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. This is from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, Emmanuel, this name, it reveals the result of our redemption. So Jesus reminds us, the name Jesus reminds us that he came as our Savior, but the name Emmanuel reminds us that our salvation was tied to a distinctive purpose, which is that we might be with God and God might be with us. Remember all the covenant promises in which God would say, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the constant promise of the covenant. By the way, at the very end of the Bible, you see similar language. We will be with him as his people and he will be our God. We will dwell with him forever. The purpose of God being fulfilled through these completed promises. Reminding us. That God's desire is not just to save us from our sins, 
but to bring us near to himself. Relationship. An eternal relationship. But the interesting thing about this Isaiah prophecy is the context in which it was originally given. It sounds like Isaiah 7.14 comes as a very joyous announcement, and yet it came in such a dark day. It was given during the time of King Ahaz, who was one of the most wicked kings that Israel had ever known. And God eventually was going to bring judgment upon the people of Israel through the Assyrians. And God is preparing to make them aware that judgment is coming. And so the prophet comes, God's messenger comes to King Ahaz and says to King Ahaz, Hey, Ahaz, God wants you to ask for a sign. What kind of sign would you like that the prophecy that I'm bringing you is going to be fulfilled? And Ahaz, in that moment, acts all pious and holy. And he says, I'm not going to put God to the test. I won't ask for a sign. And the prophet says, well, if you won't ask for a sign, then God will just give you a sign. And that's when he speaks the words of Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And before that child is old enough to be weaned, he goes on in the prophecy to say, before that child is old enough to be weaned, the Assyrians will be at your doorstep. The judgment of God will be upon you. God is giving this sign, a sign of coming judgment. And yet, here in Matthew He utilizes that promise to remind us not of coming judgment, but of coming salvation. He goes on in Isaiah 8. Behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Do you see the picture of judgment? It's like we're going back to the flood of Noah's day. The judgment of God coming like floodwaters. This is a picture of what the Assyrian armies would look like as they flooded into the land, bringing destruction as a result of the people's continuing sin against God. This prophecy was given in a day when judgment was coming, and yet here God takes the very same promise. And he lays it side by side with that child conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he says, he is a reminder that while judgment is coming against man's sin, God is providing a way of salvation. By the way, if you go back and look at what God did in the coming of the Assyrians, God also provided a way of salvation in the day of King Hezekiah who came after Ahaz. God's judgment and God's salvation are oftentimes set side by side. Why? 
Because it's a reminder that every one of us will face one of these two eternal realities. Either you will for eternity be saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Or you will for eternity face the wrath of God and His fiery judgment. As we finish out this morning, let me show you just a couple of other things in this passage. First of all, we've seen miraculous means and the virgin birth and the, and the dreams, uh, the angel's message through the dreams of Joseph. But then in verse 24, I just love this. We just see ordinary means. God working here, not through the supernatural, but just through the ordinary, everyday obedience of this man named Joseph. It says, when Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He just did what God said. He took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Church, what a beautiful reminder to us during this Christmas season of how God blesses obedience. Was it easy for Joseph to do what was, he was being asked to do in that moment? Would it have been easy for Joseph to explain away the dream? Maybe I just had some bad sushi last night, or I don't, you know, what, what has caused that weird thing to, ha- to take place? Well, it would have been easy for Joseph to come up with all kinds of reasons to do less than what God had said, and yet we see Joseph here just standing as a beautiful example to us of what happens when we simply walk in obedience to what God has told us to do. And God has given us instruction. He has shown us what is good. And he invites us to do what Joseph did, just to do what God has told us to do. It's not going to always be easy. But it will always ultimately be blessed. Jesus said in John 14, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's pretty simple. Love-fueled obedience. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Do you see the relational element that he's attaching to obedience here? Our obedience must always be tied to our relationship with God, that God has entered into relationship with us through what our Savior has done for us. That's the chain that's necessary. This is not us trying to earn the favor of God through our obedience. This is our obedience being the result of, the fruit of, what God has done for us. The same thing was true for Joseph. What God had done and was continuing to do was primary. Joseph's obedience came as a result. The same will be true for those who are walking in the gospel. But again, this reminder of Emmanuel, God with us, that leads us back to the very center 
of this Advent season that we're celebrating. Remember, Advent means a coming or an appearing. And, and we exist really between two Advents. It's the thought I want to leave you with this morning as we consider the times in which we live. We remind ourselves that in His first Advent, Jesus came to be with us. But in his second advent, when he comes again, that we will go to be with him. This is God's plan and purpose that his people would be gathered together with him, gathered together at his throne. As we see in Revelation 5, the picture of people from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered around one throne, worshiping one king, and it's the king who was born 2,000 years ago in a cattle stall. It's the king who lived the life of a homeless person during his earthly ministry. It's the king who, yes, performed miracles and taught with an authority like no other, and yet the end of that was that mankind took him and put him upon a cross. But ultimately, no one took his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord, and he said, because I lay my life down of my own accord, I will take it up again. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And this is the king that we are worshiping and celebrating, not just during this Advent season, but with all of our lives. This is the king of God's people rescued by his grace. And it's the king who gave us the great commission in Matthew 28. So interesting, Matthew's gospel begins and ends with a reminder of Emmanuel. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said, Behold, final words of this gospel behold jesus said pay attention i am with you always to the end of the earth you say well then what happens then we're with him this is really a summary of all that jesus came to do he came to eliminate the chasm that exists between God and man because of our sinful rebellion against God. Jesus came to make a way through his cross for us to be brought to God once again, to be in communion with him like they were in the Garden of Eden, except for now in the future there will be no more opportunity for sin to cause a chasm. Because again, at the virgin birth, God was saying that line is going to be cut off. That's going to be done away with. There's a new way, a new and living way through this baby who is born, who will live a sinless life and die a sacrificial death and rise from the grave, showing that no longer will death have control of mankind. But God has made a way for our redemption through this king. We've seen three names this morning. He is the Christ. He is Jesus, and He is Emmanuel. But let me share with you a few more as we finish this morning. In Revelation 1.8, He is the Alpha and the Omega. In John 6, He's the bread of life. In Ephesians 2, He is the chief cornerstone. In John 10, He's called the door for the sheep. In Isaiah 9, He's referenced as the everlasting Father. Revelation 3 calls Him the faithful and true witness. John 10 calls him the good shepherd. In Colossians 1, he's the head of the church and the image of the invisible God. 
In Revelation 6, we're reminded that He is the judge of all the earth. In Revelation 17, He's the King of kings. And two chapters later, He's the Lord of lords. Isaiah 9, He is the mighty God. In Philippians 2, He's the name above all names. In John 3, the only begotten Son of God. Isaiah 9, He's the Prince of Peace. Romans 15, He is the Root of Jesse. In Mark 15, the Son of God and the Son of Man. In John 15, He is the True Vine. In Hebrews 13, He is the Unchanging One. In 1 Corinthians 15, He is the One who brings victory over sin and death. Isaiah 9 calls Him our Wonderful Counselor. 2 Corinthians 1, He is the yes and the amen. And finally, in Isaiah 9, the very passage that, Isaiah, that Matthew quotes here in Matthew chapter 1, he says in Isaiah 9, 7, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus Christ is the zeal of the Lord of hosts who has accomplished our salvation from the wrath of God. Are you trusting in Him today? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You for what we have seen in Your Word this morning. This reminder of who our King truly is. Our King is the Christ, the long-awaited One. The fulfillment of all of your promises. Our King was given the name Jesus by his true Father, that we might be reminded that he came to save us from our sins. And he is called Emmanuel, God with us, as a reminder of what he came to do. That the work of the cross was to pay the penalty for our sins, but it was also to bridge the gap between us and you, Father. To make a way for us to come to you. So, Father, as we stand here this morning, between his two advents, between His coming to bring salvation and His coming to bring judgment in a future day. May the cry of our hearts be the last prayer of this Bible. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Father, may we not become so comfortable and complacent in this world that we forget this world is passing away. There is a time stamp on this world, but an eternity yet to come when those who have been brought into the presence of God through faith in Jesus Christ will have an eternal home. God with us and us with God forever. May we rejoice in that this morning. As we share this final song, we pray in Jesus' name.